Children are uh, dismissed for Children's Church at this time. Take your Bibles, if you would, with me and open up to Exodus chapter 4. We are in Exodus chapter 4 this morning, and uh, we'll be reading verses 1 down through verse uh, 18 or 17. Follow along then in the word of God. When Moses answered, but behold, they will not believe me or listen to my voice, for they will say, the Lord did not appear to you. The Lord said to him, what is that in your hand? He said, a staff. And the Lord said, throw it down on the ground. So Moses threw it on the ground and it became a serpent and Moses ran from it. But the Lord said to Moses, put out your hand and catch it by the tail. So he put out his hand and caught it and it became a staff in his hand that they may believe that the Lord, the God of their fathers, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, the God of Jacob has appeared to you. And again, the Lord said to him, Put your hand inside your cloak. And he put his hand inside his cloak. And when he had took it out, behold, it was leprous like snow. And then God said, put your hand back inside your cloak. So he put his hand back inside his cloak. And when he took it out, behold, it was restored like the rest of his flesh. If they will not believe you, God said, or listen to the first sign, they may believe the latter sign. If they will not believe even the two signs or listen to your voice, you shall take some of the water from the Nile and pour it on the ground. And the water that you shall take from the Nile will become blood on dry ground. Moses said to the Lord, oh, my Lord, I am not eloquent either in the past or since you have spoken to your servant, but I am slow, slow of speech and of tongue. Then the Lord said to him, who made man's mouth? Who makes him mute or deaf or seeing or blind? Is it not I, the Lord? Now, therefore, go and I will be with your mouth and teach you uh, what you shall speak. But Moses said, oh, my Lord, please send someone else. Then the anger of the Lord was kindled against Moses. And he said, is there not Aaron, your brother, the Levite? I know that he can speak well. Behold, he is coming to meet you. And when he sees you, he will be glad in his heart. You shall speak to him and put the words in his mouth. And I will be with your mouth and with his mouth and will teach you both what to do. He shall speak for you to the people. He shall be your mouth and you shall be as a as God to him and take in your hand this staff with which you shall do the signs. Let's pray this morning. Our gracious God and heavenly father, Lord, we do want to come before you today and Thank you for your goodness. Thank you for your kindness, the way that you work, all the things uh, that you do. We pray that you would be with us this morning uh, as we look at your word. And we pray that we would ask ourselves, uh, what have you called us to? Where have you called us to to serve you with our lives? That you would speak to us and direct us and and guide us, Lord, even as you have guided your children down through uh, the ages. Give me the words to say uh, from this passage this morning. In Jesus name we pray. Amen. 
Well, I didn't plan this exactly, but it works out very well uh, that we are doing the call of Moses on the very same day uh, when we have a missionary here. And I think this happened very similarly uh, the last time a missionary was here to visit. Uh, the passage had some great overlaps. So uh, there's just a plug for expository preaching. Uh, things come up and the Lord in his providence uh, deals with them at the right uh, time. When you think about missions, oftentimes missions or even pastors will talk about a call to ministry, something that God has done in their life uh, to show them, to open a door, to lay a burden on their heart that they should move in this direction, either through training or through applying to something. Sometimes missionaries feel a particular burden to a people group. Other times you, you have certain gifts and, and, and you feel like God is calling you to use them because he's gifted you and other people have confirmed them. Uh, the scriptures say he who desires to be an elder desires a noble thing. And so sometimes God calling us and directing us into a position, he gives us that burden. He gives us that desire, and then that desire is verified outwardly uh, through others. Obviously, Moses' call is unique. The call of the prophets in the Old Testament are, are unique. Uh, you shouldn't expect to see a burning bush when you go out uh, today. It's not that God can't do that. It's just that that is not how God works through the ministry of his word uh, in today's uh, day and age. We have all of the scriptures and they are uh, certainly sufficient. But that's not to say that God doesn't work. God doesn't lay burdens. God doesn't direct you through your quiet time and, and those uh, sorts of things. And sometimes you just know, like, God is calling me. He wants me to do this. Question this morning is, how do I respond to God's call? How do I respond to God's call, his leading, his directing, his making it clear through various means that he wants me to go here and do this or use my gifts in such a way? First thing this morning we want to notice is when God calls, God empowers. I think the biggest thing that keeps us from doing uh, in our lives what we know God wants us to do is we don't think that we have the ability. We know our weaknesses. We know our fears and sometimes those fears overcome us. And so when God calls us, you need to understand that God empowers you even more. Like you look at the Apostle Paul and the Apostle Paul later in his life has this thorn in the flesh and he prays to the Lord three times to take it away. And God says, no. He says, my grace is sufficient for you. My power is made perfect in your weakness. So even as God is empowering Paul to be an apostle, it doesn't mean that God removed every struggle, whatever this thorn in the flesh was. It didn't mean that, that it was easy for Paul to do ministry, that he just waltzed in and nobody could talk, touch him and his, his arguments just Saved everyone. No, he has opponents, people that rise up. They want to arrest him. They want to beat him. It's a hard ministry. And the hardness of the ministry doesn't invalidate the call of the ministry. When God calls, though, he does empower. Let's look at how God empowers Moses. And then we'll talk about how God empowers the believer uh, today. 
So verse one, God is going to give Moses three signs. Moses answered. uh, And by the way, we're obviously picking up in the middle of this narrative, right? It flows from chapter three, but I couldn't preach chapter three and four all at once. So so just remember last week, the burning bush, he turns aside. He hears the great name of God. I am who I am. Then it says Moses answered. But behold, they do not believe me. What? Yeah. But behold, they will not believe me or listen to my voice. For they will say the Lord did not appear to you. So God has said, go to them, tell them that that I am the I am who sent you, the God of Abraham, the Isaac and Jacob. Moses says, well, who should I tell them you are? He says the I am who I am. He, he makes clear that name of God. Now he's told again, go down there to deliver them. This is what will happen. And Moses basically says, these people aren't going to listen to me. Like if someone walked up. Uh, to you and said to you, hey, we are all going to wait for a spaceship to come. God told me that this spaceship is coming and he's going to take us away and deliver us. What would you think? You'd think they're crazy. And most times when when someone comes up and says, you know, God appeared to me in a vision or a burning bush like this, we would think, well, we're wow, this guy's off his rocker. You know, Moses, little too much time in the desert, maybe some heat exhaustion. More than that, think about this. As far as we know, God hadn't spoken to anyone for 400 years that they'd been in Egypt. You know how between the Old Testament and the New Testament, there's 400 years of silence where there's no prophets. And it's not that God isn't working. God is still working, but he has no new revelation until the coming of Christ for 400 years. So far as Scripture tells us or is silent in telling us there was no new revelation of God. And imagine they're they're in Egypt. And they're surrounded by all these foreign gods and these foreign worshipers. And and do you think that they had doubts? Yeah. It probably started out as when is God going to come and save us? For some of them, it probably was, is God going to come and save us? And now Moses shows up on the scene. How do we know that Moses is telling the truth? And so God is going to give him signs to validate the ministry. We see this in the New Testament, for example, with the Apostle Paul. How do we know that the apostles are the authorized ministers building the foundation of the church whose cornerstone is Jesus Christ? Well, how do we know their authority? God empowers them in special ways so we might know they have a unique role as an apostle. An apostle had to see the resurrected Lord Jesus Christ. And Paul says, I saw him as one untimely born. He saw him on the road to Damascus. And so there were signs that went along to validate their ministry, even in the New Testament. So the first sign, uh, the Lord said to him, verse two, what is in your hand? A staff, Moses said. And he said, throw it on the ground. So he threw it on the ground and it became a serpent and Moses ran away from it. And so then as it goes on, God says, you know, reach out and pick up this staff by the tail. And Moses picks it up by the tail. And as soon as he grabs it by the tail. Now, what would you expect a snake to do if you grab it by the tail? Yeah, bite you. Uh, Do not go to the zoo and, and, you know, garter snakes don't really matter. But don't go like into the cobra cage and be like, Hey, I'm going to pick up this snake by the tail because it is going to bite you. It's just going to spin around and you're done. And so this would be, normally speaking, a very stupid thing to tell someone to do. 
But it emphasizes the power of God because as soon as Moses grabs it by the tail, what happens? It turns right back into a staff. It doesn't curl up. It doesn't come back around. And and, and same old staff that it had just been. And then what does it say in verse five? That they may believe the Lord, the God of their fathers, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, the God of Jacob has appeared to you. This is going to be a sign that God appeared to them. There's some fascinating background stuff about staffs and royal authority in Egypt. And this is just this is kind of cool, I think. So in Egyptian culture, the king's staff was a source of royalty, power and authority. Uh, Similarly, the staff was considered often the staff of, of a god. This is where his his power was. And the king, who was in Egyptian culture the son of God, sometimes the son of Ra, sometimes related to Osiris as well, the king having a staff was considered empowered with magical power, and the staff was this power of God, right? So, also in the, in the Egyptian world, the cobra... Uh, was often very symbolic. It was, according to one scholar, the patron goddess of lower Egypt, often on Pharaoh's forehead as a symbol of imperial sovereignty. Did you ever do you ever go to the museums and you see those face masks that the pharaohs and stuff have? And, and they have that little thing that hooks up and around. It's it's like that snake head there. It's it's supposed to be. And I'm not an Egyptologist, so I don't know about all of them. But the ones you see it on, uh, it's supposed to be uh, a cobra. It's a symbol of power. It's a symbol of the king's authority. It's the symbol of the king uh, being a son of God, uh, if you will. The rod then of Moses is going to be very symbolic. In fact, in Exodus 4.20, it says, And Moses took the staff of God. In his hand, Exodus 7, 9, when he's 17, 9, when they're remember when they're having that battle, that fight, and Moses has to hold his hands up over his head. And every time his hands drop with the staff, uh, the enemies start to win. And so then so then uh, it's Aaron and Joshua and they have to they have to hold Moses's hands up. That staff there, it says he went up on the hill and took the staff of God in his hand. Now. What are we saying? First off, it's not like in the pagan culture. This staff was not a magical staff. But Moses showing up to the Israelites and then later to Pharaoh with this staff and having it turn into a snake and then being able to grab it and have the snake turn back into the staff is going to symbolize to the people that the real God has given Moses power over the fake God. Who is the real God? It's the Lord, not the God of the Egyptians. And and this is throughout the book of Exodus in these early chapters. God is going to show them in, in language and in symbols that they can understand that would have related to their culture, just like just like Derek is trying to make sure he communicates the gospel in ways that that relate and, and translate cross culturally. God is showing them in ways that would have turned on the light bulb in their cultural understanding. When, when Moses' rod is more powerful, 
Remember when Aaron drops his rod and it turns into a snake and then the, the um, Egyptian priests, they drop their rods and it turns into snakes. And it's kind of like this, oh, no big deal. You can do it, too. You know, you can do it. So can we. And of course, they were using magic and something demonic going on there. But then remember what happens to Aaron's rod? Remember how it eats the snake, eats all the little snakes? What do you think that's saying? Kind of like saying, my God can beat up your God. Our God is more powerful than your God. And so Moses is given this staff and he's to go before the people of Israel. And they would have recognized God has given you this authority. You're a you're a messenger of God and that God is going to do something here through your staff. Turn it into a snake. God is going to defeat the snake gods, if you will, of the Egyptians. It's to inspire confidence. It's it's not just a cheap magic trick to say, okay, okay, God is God is with you. There's symbolism in the very acts to say not just that God is with Moses and talk to him, but it's assurance that this really is what God is going to do. He's really going to take them out of Egypt. He's really going to take the heavy hand of Pharaoh off them because God's hand is mightier than Pharaoh. And this is a repeated theme, the hand of Pharaoh versus the hand of God. And God's going to say, I will compel Pharaoh with a mighty hand. Part of this imagery here, then, is to show the superiority of God over the fake and false gods of the Egyptians. And one of the reasons that that God is raising up Pharaoh and hardening his heart, as we'll see in the coming weeks, God is raising up Pharaoh in all of his pride, in all of his arrogance, in all of his stubbornness, so that God can come along and say, See, I am bigger and badder than Pharaoh. Pharaoh is no match for me. And and throughout the narrative, as Pharaoh gets more and more stubborn, more and more hardened of the heart, digs in his heels more, rejects the word of God more. It's, it's like a continual claim to more and more power. God continues to show more and more authority until finally at the end, God says, you want to keep my firstborn son? I'm going to take your firstborn son's. From you, And that's the language, actually, of, of chapter 4, verse uh, 22. There was, in the ancient Egyptian text, this idea of the hand of Pharaoh. And that Pharaoh's hand, as the Son of God, established this peace and order across all of the creation. That he was a, that he was a, a channel for the divine, if you will. And so you look to the Pharaoh to establish order, to keep peace, to to harmony, to harmonize the creation. And God is going to say, Pharaoh can't do jack. I'm God. And, And here the thing is, God's people who had lived in this surrounded by all this paganism, they needed to know that God was God. And he does what he says he will do. Sometimes we're like that in the church, right? We need to be reminded of the power and the majesty and the authority of God. 
We see something going on in our life. We think it's out of control. We're praying like crazy. We feel like God isn't answering. We need to step back and say, God is still God. God is sovereign over all of these things. God has not abandoned his children. And you see this in Exodus as he's hearing their cries. Notice he gives them another sign, the sign of Moses putting his hand into the cloak. So Moses is told, put his hand into his cloak. He puts it in, pulls it out. It's leprosy. It's white as snow. Now, uh, ancient leprosy, whatever this disease was that we call leprosy, isn't the same disease uh, that we call modern leprosy by. But it was something uh, that was not only ceremonially unclean, but but you, it was very contagious and, and you would be put outside the camp. So to get leprosy uh, was a very scary thing. And so, you know, for Moses to have his hand all of a sudden have leprosy on it, that is terrifying. Uh, Moses, if he's in the people of God, should be now on the outskirts. So he's not contaminating. It's like if you have an, if you have an infectious disease, uh, our kids one summer got lice. And, and you want to, like, keep everybody far apart. Like the one that gets life, you're like, OK, you over there, the rest of you stay over here. Well, well, leprosy is like that. And God shows he has power over that, you know, put the clo- hand back in your cloak, puts it back in, pulls his hand out. It's normal. God is showing his power and authority. And then if you don't believe that. Verse nine, if they will not believe these two signs or listen to your voice, you shall take some water from the Nile and pour it on the dry ground and the water you shall take from the Nile will become blood on the dry ground. The Nile, the very lifeblood of of the Egyptian life, when the Nile floods and then recedes, you'd had rich farmlands. If the Nile didn't flood in the spring, you were going to have drought because it didn't deposit the rich soil and you were going to then have famine in the land. The Egyptians worshipped the Nile. Various deities came out of the Nile. The Nile was the center of the religious life. And so to take a little bit of water out of the Nile and to turn it into blood right in front of them would be to say, God has power even over this, this highest Symbol in the Egyptian worldview, God is in control of. Why would you doubt God? That is the point. They're not supposed to doubt God. Again, the great Lord God who made a covenant with Israel is not only saying that he would deliver them, but he's showing them in these signs that he could do what he said he would do. God is not just showing them that he really appeared to Moses. These signs are actually going to be used then with Pharaoh to show Pharaoh that God is really behind the word of Moses. It's to use the language later in Exodus, the finger of God. The magicians at Exodus 8, 19, the magician said to Pharaoh, this is the finger of God. But God hardened Pharaoh's heart and would not listen to them as the Lord had said. It's interesting later on in in the book of Luke, in Jesus's ministry, Jesus says, but if by the finger of God, I cast out demons, then the kingdom of God has come upon you. When Jesus comes, how does he show his authority and power to deliver? He starts delivering people from demons. How does he show his authority to defeat sin and death and uh, the devil? How how are they going to know that the cross is actually accomplishing 
what what he says it will accomplish, the forgiveness of sins. Well, he starts with, if you will, with some minor battles. Now, this is not Jesus like showing off. But the point is, if Jesus can defeat some of these demons through the power of the Spirit of God, or here in Luke, the language through the finger of God, that Exodus language, the idea is you can know and trust that the kingdom is at hand and God is saving his people through the death and the resurrection of Jesus Christ. When God says he saves, he saves. Now, let's go back to ourselves for a moment. Do I respond to God's call? If God has called you to some task, to some ministry, put some burden on your heart. Maybe you feel there's someone that you should share the gospel with. But you're saying to yourself, you know, I'm I'm really scared. I don't I don't think I can do it. I, I wouldn't have the right words to say. Maybe God is laying on your heart a burden to go into ministry. To be a pastor. To be a missionary. Maybe some of you have these reasons that you keep bringing up. Well, I could, I could never do that. Or, or I'm too old to go to the mission field. Uh, there are stories of women who retired in their 60s and 70s and went to the mission field. So that's, that's no excuse. My dad went to the mission field as a, a second career. So if you have kids in your house and you're saying, well, we could never pick up and move. Why? That's just crazy talk. Uh, missionaries do those things. And if God is calling you, don't let that be an excuse. God calls us not only to salvation, but also to use our spiritual gifts for him. And when he puts in our hearts this burden for ministry and other people are recognizing the call of God in our life and they're saying, yeah, I think God has really put you here for that. God is going to equip you for those tasks, even just think about just think about God's call that we fight sin and temptation. God equips us for that. First Corinthians ten thirteen. No temptation has t- overtaken you except what is common to man. God is faithful and he will not let you be tempted beyond your ability. And with the temptation, he will provide a way of escape that you may be able to endure under it. So there's a very simple God calls you to spiritual warfare to put sin to death and he equips you. Even more, God equips us and is present with us in missions and evangelism. What does Jesus say at the Great Commission? Go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the name of the Son, and the name of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. God spends his spirit into us for those very reasons. He tells the disciples, don't worry when you're dragged into courts and synagogues what you will say. The Holy Spirit will be with you. And in those moments, he will teach you. I want you to notice here that God then calls uh, when God calls. Who are we to question? Moses takes issue with God, and this is a very dangerous thing to do. Look at verse 10. But Moses said to the Lord, Lord, I am not eloquent either in the past or since you have spoken to your servant, but I am slow to speech and of tongue. It's not just I think that I, I, I don't think this means just that Moses wasn't a good public speaker. I think this probably means that Moses had some sort of speech impediment. 
Maybe he had a stuttering problem. Maybe he had a cleft palate or something. Maybe he had just pronunciation issues. Maybe growing up, he was he was the, the kind of child who normally in our culture would be sent to a speech therapist and, and early intervention so you can overcome it. But obviously in that culture, uh, they didn't have those things. Whatever it was, it's not just that Moses was afraid of public speaking. It's that Moses realized and felt, yeah, I can't do this. I have an inability here. There's something about my speech. The, the language here is that his speech is heavy. His tongue is heavy. There's something that prevents him or in his mind prevents him from speaking. And so God gives assurance, right? He says, you know, Moses, who, who made your mouth? Which the obvious answer is God did. If God made your mouth and tells you you can use it for this, don't you think God knows exactly what condition your mouth is in? Like God isn't looking at Moses and saying like, wow, you're the most qualified, most profound speaker. That's why I've called you. God is saying to Moses, I've called you because I want you to do it. God often uses our weaknesses so that God's strength is displayed even more. He often uses the lowly of the world. To accomplish great things in the kingdom so that it humiliates the wise of this world. God gives him assurance. Who made man's mouth? Who makes him mute or deaf or seeing or blind? Is it not I, the Lord? Now go, therefore, and I will be with your mouth and teach you what you shall speak. Not only is God going to help him through whatever this speech impediment was, God is going to teach him. And give to him the things that he should say. How often are we like Moses? God puts a burden on our heart. We feel like we should go share the gospel with someone. And, and we say, yeah, I, I can't do that. God's maybe calling you to, to teach a children's Sunday school class, to teach an adult class, to lead a Bible study in your home. And you're saying, I, I can't speak. I can't, I can't teach. I can't. I've never done that before. Let Pastor Tim do that. When God calls you, God equips you. Moses gets kind of belligerent with God. Verse 13, he says, oh, my Lord, please send someone else. So so this is kind of, you know, you know how sometimes when your child, they come up with excuses why they can't do something that you've asked them to do. Uh, my kids do that from time to time. You ask them to do something and they're like, well, well, but what about this reason? What about that reason? And then you're like, no, don't worry about that. Do it. And then what do they finally say? Well, why can't you make her do it or him do it or the sibling do it? Why me? This is Moses saying, I don't want to do it. This is where Moses' heart finally comes out. Don't make me do it. And God gets angry here with Moses. Uh, it, it, I would say it's a bit of anger. It's, it's not the fullness of, of God's anger. So he makes an allowance that they will use his brother Moses and God, or excuse me, Moses' brother Aaron will be used. And it says in verse 15, you shall speak to him and put words in his mouth and I will be your mouth and with his mouth and will teach you both what to do. He shall speak to the people and he, yeah, excuse me, for he shall speak for you to the people and he shall be your mouth and you shall be as God to him. So you think about this. This is just an analogy, right? God speaks 
to the prophets, right? So that when you when God speaks, when you hear the voice of the prophet, it's as if God himself is speaking. God is saying, Aaron, Moses, you are still going to be the point man. You're still the people, the man leading my people out. I am still raising you up. You can't stay here being a shepherd forever and hide from the task that I've called you to. But because of your sin and because of your stubbornness and because of my patience and mercy, God says, all right, Aaron can come along. I'll tell you what to say. You tell Aaron what to say. I'll be teaching you both. And Aaron can be the voice. Just as God is the voice to the prophet, the idea is Moses is the leader here. Moses is the prophetic figure, the the king, if you will, the judge of God's people leading them out. And Aaron is simply going to be his voice. In fact, later on, in, in as you go through the narrative of Exodus, uh, it often says Moses said, which either means that Moses got over his fear of speaking or This is what Aaron said, but it comes with the authority of Moses because God told Moses what to say. The point being this, when God calls you to something, do not make excuses. We want to ask ourselves this morning, where is God calling you? Some of you are very comfortable in your life right now. You're you're at a good phase. You, You love where you are. God's opened a bunch of doors But ask yourself this, is there something that God is calling me to? Maybe God's calling you to be right where you are, and that's great. Stay where you are, stay in his will, walk uh, in his ways. But maybe God is challenging some of you, some of us, to step outside of our comfort zone. Would God have you be a missionary like Derek and Anna? Would God have you go into ministry in some capacity? Is there something around here that in the life of the church that God would have you do more of? Don't resist the call of God when he puts it in your heart and in your life. Let's close with a word of prayer. Our gracious God and heavenly father, Lord, we do want to thank you for your word. We thank you uh, for all that you have done for us and and the way that you work uh, in our lives. We thank you for how you raised up Moses and you equipped him and you empowered him and you gave him all of uh, the abilities uh, that he needed to do the job. And yet, Lord, you used his weakness. You used him through his weakness and, and not through a removal of the weakness. And so, Lord, let that, let that be a lesson to us, that, that those things that, that we throw up and say, uh, I can't do this because of X, Y, or Z, might be the very reasons you want to use us, because we'll have to rely on you. And we'll have to be humble and we'll have to trust that you can do what you say you will do. Most of all, Lord, give us a passion for the message of the gospel, the message that that is the salvation to those who hear and believe, that we would have a desire to take it and to share it and and be confident that the gospel is the power of God. In Jesus name we pray. Amen. We're going to come now this morning and we're going to share uh, communion Communion is the Lord's table. It's a time where uh, the people of God remember the Lord Jesus Christ in his death and sacrifice for sin. Uh, If you're a visitor with us today, uh, we welcome you uh, to partake of communion if you know the Lord Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior. If you have believed upon him and received him 
uh, for the forgiveness of sins. Uh, The Bible teaches that all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God and are subject then to the wrath of God, to his punishment. But God still loved the world that he sent his one and only son, that whoever believes in him shall not perish, but have everlasting life. Taking of the symbols of the bread and body of the Lord Jesus Christ are symbols that we trust Jesus Christ. Taking the elements doesn't save us. Uh, These are, are symbolic of the body of Christ and the blood of Christ. But it's also symbolic, the fact that we take them in to ourselves, that we as believers are united to Jesus Christ, that we've become a part of his spiritual body. It's also a reminder to us that salvation is received through faith so that just as you take in these elements, you grab them as they come by and you take them in. So as it comes to hearing the good news about Jesus Christ, his death and resurrection, you and I have a responsibility to hear and to take it in, as it were, to believe on the Lord Jesus Christ. We don't just sit there and go, "Okay, that's a nice story. I affirm that it's true. We put our faith and our trust in Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ alone saves We're talking in Exodus about a God who hears the cries of his people, their enslavement, their their bondage. And he comes and he redeems them and he exercises his power and takes them out of that slavery. What greater slavery is there than our slavery to our sin? That everyone who enters this world is is bound by sin and we we live in sin and we act out sin and we do not desire God, the scriptures say. But God, who is rich in mercy, comes down in Jesus Christ and Jesus goes to the cross to pay the penalty for our sins. And he rises again from the dead to assure us that new life is found in him. That he has defeated sin and death. You need to trust Jesus. And I would invite you, if you never have, pray to him right now and invite him into your heart. Confess that you are a sinner and believe that Jesus alone saves you from your sin. As we are partaking communion, do not take it if you do not know where you stand with the Lord. Furthermore, the scriptures warn us to examine ourselves as we take communion. That means think through your life this past week or month. Do I have sins that right now I just need to confess in the quietness of my heart? It's not that you're, um, it's not that you're unsaved in that moment, but it is about being in good communion in a good relationship with him in the moment. That we're not hiding things. That there's not something that's disrupting the intimacy that we have with the Lord Jesus Christ. It's about being open and honest. And if we really believe that Jesus' blood covers our sin, we should be willing as we sin to confess our sins. The Bible says if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. So that we're not to be living in sin and walking in sin. But when we do sin, we have an advocate in heaven who stands as our mediator and assures us that he continues to forgive our sins. That's why we bring them and confess them. 
don't make light of who Jesus is by just casually taking in the elements today. I'm going to ask the guys to to come forward. Um, We're going to pray together, pass out the bread, then uh, just hold on to it, and then we'll read some scripture uh, and pray as well there. Let's, Let's pray. Our gracious God and Heavenly Father, Lord, we ask that you uh, just, as we take communion today, that you would take it seriously, that we would come into your presence and that you would delight in you and your broken body and shed blood. We thank you, Jesus, for all you've done. Apostle Paul writes, For I received from the Lord that which I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus on the night when he was betrayed and when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. Let's give thanks one more time. Our Lord Jesus, we do thank you for your broken body that was given for us on the cross of Calvary. We praise you and thank you for this. And as we partake of these elements, we are reminded of all that you've done for us. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Take and eat.
In the same way, also he took the cup after supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Let's give thanks one more time. Our Lord Jesus, we do want to thank you for your shed blood. And we are reminded uh, that your shed blood has established the new covenant. We are reminded in Hebrews that without the shedding of blood, there is no remission of sins. And so we praise you that you died in our place. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. We're going to, at this time, take the special benevolence offering. And again, this doesn't go to the general budget, but to the deacons as there are needs in the church. So we're going to end on a hymn today. And we're going to do it a cappella, which means I'm going to need your help. So we're going to, we're going to end on uh, trust and obey. Um, so let's stand and turn to 349. When we walk with the
Some of you uh, are used to holding that last note and others, others not. Let's uh, thank you all for being here today. Let's pray. Our gracious God and Heavenly Father, Lord, we, we do. What a delight it is to know you, to walk in your ways, to have been known by you through the Lord Jesus Christ and that you call us to salvation. That is the, the greatest calling of all in our lives. And we are so unworthy of that. We do pray that, that you would guide us and direct us to each in our lives as you have given us tasks and gifts and abilities and things that we should be doing, works uh, that you've prepared beforehand for us to do. As we go out from here, watch over us and protect us. In Jesus' precious name we pray. Amen. You're dismissed. Amen.